Welcome, welcome everyone. It's good to see you here this morning as we uh, are in, what, the second, second Sunday of the season of Lent. There is, um, there's this parable that is often used and, and adapted in things like spiritual direction. And everybody has their own version. This is my version of it. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a wise spiritual master who taught people how to connect with God. And he was so wise that people traveled from all around um, to seek his help. And the spiritual master would just welcome any and all who came to him, showing them hospitality, housing them, teaching them for months and even years. And he would just share everything he knew with all who came to him to help them find their path um, to a deep connection with the divine. Then one day, this world-renowned scholar came to visit the spiritual master. And the scholar said, look, I'm a scholar of science and philosophy and religion. I've read all the great spiritual teachers, the great works on spirituality, and I long for a deep connection with the divine, but I don't have it. And so I've come to ask you to teach me. Will you show me what I'm missing and, and help me learn how to commune with God? And so the spiritual master agreed to teach the scholar. However, it soon became obvious the scholar was already quite full of his own opinions and knowledge. He interrupted the master repeatedly, telling his own stories, sharing his own theories and quoting all the famous teachers that he had read. But he failed to listen to most of what the master had to say. And after many failed attempts to help the scholar learn what he was missing, the master calmly suggested they should take a break and have some tea. No, no commentary in there about just how bad it was getting for the spiritual master, like if he was about to hurt somebody or, or if um, this was a norm. But he boiled the water, put on the kettle, or put the kettle and the cups on a tray, and set them on a table in front of his guest and put tea leaves in the scholar's cup and poured the water in from the kettle. But when the cup was filled, the master just kept on pouring until the cup overflowed into the saucer and then the tray and then the table and the floor and eventually even onto the scholar's robes at which the scholar cried, stop, stop, the, the cup is already full. Can't you see? And of course, the master said, exactly. You are like this cup, so full of ideas and knowledge and opinion. Nothing more will fit in. There's no space for God. All we're doing right now is making a mess. So come back to me with an empty cup, and then I will teach you how to commune with the divine. One of the um, central claims of the Christian tradition is this idea that human beings are born with an innate capacity to commune with God. It's like ordinary people can encounter God just in the midst of ordinary everyday life. And we may not be able to see God with our eyes, but we have the capacity to experience God and discern God's presence and even God's will for our lives. But most of us don't. For most people living in just like a contemporary American society, this capacity for God goes largely unused and unexplored. And that's really the, the tension that I want us to explore through our text for today. We all have the capacity to know God, to commune with God, but for most of us, most of the time, we have no significant connection with the divine. And there are reasons for this. The, the reasons have to do with just the way we are as human beings, but also with the way God is as God. 
Let me see if I can explain this. So the way we are as human beings that limits our connection to the divine is mostly about what the, the parable explains. It's about our cup being so full that there's no space for God. Um, this happens in a lot of ways. You need to look no further than, than the fact that when we're in real crisis and feel just empty and desperate, suddenly God is pretty easy to find. But there are reasons. There are things that fill us up. There's our time and attention, you know, is already full. We're, we're busy and distracted. We're constantly entertained. And so there's little time to sit and be still and connect with God. Our imagination is full as well. Remember last week we talked about our working model of reality that's defended, highly defended. It's mostly become, in modern society, disenchanted, our model of the universe. Science has kind of triumphed over religion as the arbiter of what's officially true, and we're kind of losing our imagination for how to even recognize um, life's, you might say, immeasurable qualities or realities. So our, our working model is already full of a lot of knowledge, has little room for God. And sadly, most religion has become similar. It's so full of answers and arguments, right? And religion, since the Enlightenment period, really has tried to be like science, with a lot of arguing and proving our point in this constant fight uh, that's sometimes called, our information is better than your information. Like, this is, this is what theologians do. And there's no room then for mystery and wonder and awe. Plus, our world is so full of just problems, trouble. It's a really messed up place sometimes. Social injustice, economic injustice, racism, sexism, war, violence, abuse, trauma, loneliness. I mean, people look around at the state of the world and they say, really? Like, there's a God who is watching this and not intervening? I don't even know if I want to commune with that God. And so the result of all this this fullness, filling our cups each day, is, is that we lack a basic knowledge about our own capacity for God and about God's knowability. Mystics are rare. We have few exemplars and teachers. And along with a lack of knowledge, we lack practices like habits that help us cultivate this capacity within us. You know, even if we want a deep connection with God, we have no confidence that we can do it. Just for a moment, take a, take a look at that list. It's not like a comprehensive one. It's a pretty good list, I think, of things that are true about just the way we are as humans that keep us from connecting with God. I wonder if there's one or two that really stick out to you. You might just kind of flag those in your mind. Part of the struggle um, isn't our fault. It has to do with the way God is as God. God's way of being is so unlike anything else, it can be really difficult to discern. Um, theologians often will say God is wholly other. That's the language. God's way of being is just unlike any other way of being. And humans, we have this thing where we have trouble recognizing anything that's not like us. And so we sort of um, project ourselves onto God. And so God becomes, you know, like a superhuman, just, just like the same of us, as us, but without all of our pesky limitations. Or else we just default to a previous model and, and imagine God as kind of like a, one of the Greek gods, like a supreme being. 
Uh, I mean, it's, we have to always keep in mind, the Latin Bible dominated Christianity for 1,100 years. And the name for God in the Latin Bible was Deus, D-E-U-S. It's one letter different from Zeus, Zeus, right? Z-E-U-S, the supreme Greek God. That God, that is where the Western concept of God began. And it's wild, man. Most Americans who believe in God have never moved far beyond Zeus, throwing lightning bolts from on high, right? And either for us or against us, and hopefully, you know, destroying our enemies, which is just pretty much everybody who's not like us. But God isn't like either one of those concepts. And, and so if we worship or have a connection to that God, we're communing with an idol or with a projection. God's way of being is wholly other. It's just foreign to us. In fact, um, I, I love the rabbis teaching on this because they say, if we ever actually saw God, one of probably three things would happen. First is, God just wouldn't look like anything. But what we saw would be so foreign, we couldn't even apprehend it as God, which I think that's probably what would happen. But there are two other options they say. One is that we would see God as a threat and just try to destroy God because it's so different. So think, think like Cortez seeing the Aztec city for the first time and inexplicably going, it's beautiful, but I must kill them all, right? Like this is kind of our reaction. Or think of Europeans with Native Americans. It's, we'd see it as a threat and try to destroy it. Or the third one is that God would just overwhelm us and, and we'd kind of be overcome and, and turned into almost sycophantic robots lose our free will and our ability to love because, you know, love cannot be compelled. Love requires freedom. That's what the rabbis taught. It's interesting. None of those are very good outcomes for us or what God desires. But I think that the main problem from the God side of the equation is that God is a mystery and sort of has to be in order for us to have the capacity to know God. This is a really important insight. It's a little bit hard to get. God must limit God's self so as not to just completely overwhelm us at the point of encounter with humanity. Because God is infinite and we are finite. So anytime the infinite touches the finite, it does not work out well for the finite. I mean, think of like a hurricane meets a house of cards right? That's about how that will go down. Does not go well for the house of cards. And, and so a direct encounter with God would, would likely just overwhelm and destroy us. So God comes to us disguised in weakness and shrouded in mystery. God limits God's self. It's kind of like when you're playing with a, like a toddler, playing a game with a toddler. You get really small, you know, you, you make yourself, you hunch down, you make your voice higher, and you do baby talk. You know, you try to get, you try not overwhelm them. It's the same idea. God makes God's self weak at the point of encounter to accommodate our weakness, just out of love for us, to draw us out, to connect with us, so we're not overwhelmed or destroyed by the encounter. So there's a sense in which our very capacity to encounter God depends on God existing as a mystery. Does that make sense? Now, when I say mystery, I don't mean like God is unknowable. What I mean is that God is a mystery as in endlessly knowable, inexhaustible, boundless, 
interminable. There's no beginning to God. There's no end, no limit, no category. God is this endless mystery that can be explored endlessly by us. So every time we encounter some aspect of God and describe it and name it, this often just unlocks a whole new realm of God's being, right? And then we go explore that one piece at a time. And every door you open will be like a door to a whole new world. I, I picture it like riding in the TARDIS. Anybody else do Doctor Who? It's riding in the TARDIS. That's what it's like. First of all, it's bigger on the inside, but also every time you open the door, it's just a whole new world. God is, God is infinite, not just at the edges, but at the center and at every point. So God limits God's self to appear as a mystery just for our own protection. I love it. the medieval Christian mystics. They said, you, you can know this God, but you know God sort of like the back of your own head. Think about that. It's a great, it's a great example. You'll, you'll never, I mean, reach up and touch the back of your head, right? You're familiar with this, but you'll never directly see the back of your own head, ever. It's impossible, right? You can see its reflection, its image, but you never will see it directly. But you don't wonder if it's there right? You can feel it. it. You can feel with it. It follows you around wherever you go. It's inescapable. The mystics said, God is like this. God is like the back of your head. You can know it like the back of your head. It's kind of knowable, but unknowable at the same time. And they just accepted this as a mystery. So even though we're, we're it's part of our tradition that we're created to commune with God, most of us don't. Partly because of the way we are as humans, partly because of the way God is as God. And the transfiguration, the story that we read today, is kind of a leap forward for humanity. It's kind of a, a revelation um, in terms of our ability to see and relate to God. And what's being revealed in this narrative comes in the form of these really familiar Hebrew symbols embedded in the story. There are four of them in particular. There's mountain Sleep, clouds, and tents. So if you remember what we read earlier, they, they go up a mountain to meet with God. They, um, a great cloud encircles the scene. The disciples become really sleepy. And Peter wants to build shelters or tents. So let's look at these, these symbols. So in the, in the Bible, the symbol of a mountain often serves as a metaphor for the place to encounter God. So they just envision God as being high up in the heavens, so you climb the mountain to get closer to God. This is how it happens. But once you get there, you often get sleepy, drowsy. And sleep is a metaphor, often in the scriptures, for kind of naivete or cluelessness, which, you know, I, I'm always falling asleep, so I'm trying not to like take that too literally. But this is it. People get drowsy kind of and miss out on what's really going on. And then the cloud is often called the great cloud of unknowing. And the cloud's interesting. It's there to um, protect people during close encounters with the divine. It kind of shields them from God's presence. But it also sort of disorients and confuses us, especially our nice, clean categories and certitudes. You step into this cloud, man, you can't tell which way is up. Your senses kind of don't work. It's disorienting, but it's also protecting us. 
And then the fourth one, for the Israelites, this is kind of an interesting one. The tents were a symbol of the fact that God, Yahweh, was always on the move. And so they had to stay mobile in order to keep up with a God who also lived in a tent. Remember, God lives in a tent, the tabernacle at the center of their camp. And, and so this is what's being played within the story. Jesus goes up on a mountain. We're told they're sleepy. There's this cloud and the thing with Peter and the, the tents. These are all well-known Hebrew symbols present in this story. There are two more symbols I want to get to. They, and those are Moses and Elijah, who are more than just characters. They are really symbolic. So Moses, any good Jewish reader of this story would immediately know Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And if you remember your Hebrew Bible, both of these guys had very similar experiences to this on their own mountain. So Moses climbs Mount Sinai to meet with God to get the Ten Commandments. Remember this? The people are all below, camping in tents. A cloud envelops the mountain. And Moses hears this voice from God speaking to him, like the voice in the transfiguration that said, this is my son, listen to him. And when Moses came down, if you remember, um, after being in God's presence, his, his, the skin of his face was shining in some way. And, and like Jesus' face is shining in, in this story. It was so bad for Moses that he had to put a veil over his face because he was like freaking everybody out. Um, while he was up there, Moses had asked God, can I see you? Right? This is that desire we all have. And God said, no, that would be too much to, for you. So God hid him in a cave and then passed by so that Moses only saw, in a sense, the back of his head. And even that much lit Moses up like a Christmas tree and freaked everybody out for weeks. Years later, Elijah climbed the same mountain to meet with God. And the Lord did the same thing, hid him in the mouth of a cave so that God could pass by. Remember that story where there's like the wind, the earthquake, the fire, they all rip through. But when the Lord showed up, was present to him, it was in the silence, the still small voice. And 1 Kings 19 says, when Elijah heard it, he pulled a cloak over his face. He veiled his face, just like Moses. Then fast forward to our text. Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. It's um, morpho. It's where we get the term morph. He was morphed, changed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And for 2,000 years, people have just been like shaking their head at Peter for this little move. He wants to build um, skine. That's, that's the word. It means tent or shelter or dwelling or tabernacle. And whenever I read this, I always think of, um, there was this kid in my youth group who, every, when I was a little kid, when I was in like middle school and high school, every time we were driving home from church camp, he would be, he's the one who was like, well, you guys, why can't we be this way all the time? Right? Did you have that guy in your youth group? That's Peter. In the story, he wants to bottle the lightning, right? Contain God, contain the experience. Just camp out there on the mountain. But God is wild. 
and free and mysterious and cannot be contained. This God lived in a tent for years. And even when they wanted to build this God a house, God resisted. This word skene, it has a kind of an interesting history. It's, it's the same word in like the Greek version of, of the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's the same word used for the Jewish festival of booths or tabernacles. It's a festival where um, they spend a week camping out in tents um, to remember the wilderness and how God led them. And this was teaching them they have to be nimble, right? They had to live in tents because their God's always on the move. So Peter's suggestion here is kind of um, not what this symbol tents are for. They're not for camping out. They're for staying on the move. The word um, skene is also used in the Gospel of John in this really famous verse, an important one theologically. It says, the word became flesh and skenaod. It, it dwelt, it tented among us. And in, in John, this is the word, like the eternal word of God, like the word that spoke creation into being. This, this word um, became flesh, became a human being, Christ, and dwelled or tabernacled or tented among normal everyday people. So just think for a minute about what is, what's being symbolized with these three characters who all join up in this fiery cloud on the mountaintop. You have Moses. Moses was a huge leap forward in the history of the people of God. Through him, people began to see God as dwelling with a people. Not so much individuals, but but God lived in the tent at the center of a camp of these people. Through Elijah, there was another leap forward through all the prophets, really. The people of God learned that God dwells with the marginalized. God is with the least and the last and the lowly in like a special way. That's the prophets. And then through Christ, our tradition sees God as dwelling fully within a fully human person. Someone who's not essentially different from you or me. Shining through Christ, like unmistakably, profoundly. And this happened in a way that was still still mysterious. And so it it actually fits with the nature of God and the dynamics of God's own self-limitation. Definitely knowable and visible. The presence of God, it's discernible here. The cloud shows up, the, the face lit up, the voice of God shows up, just like with Elijah and Moses. But this all happened without consuming the disciples. They're not overwhelmed. And what the early church came to believe, in part through this story, is that Jesus of Nazareth was a moment of knowability for a God who seemed unknowable. A moment of visibility for an otherwise invisible God. It's a massive leap forward, right? A new revelation that God is in Christ and like seeable, discernible through a human person. Jesus bears the image of God, the presence of God, in a way that's easily recognized because he's just like us, one of us, and therefore not a danger. And it's in such a way that it's, it's easily recognized. Um, Peter, James, and John, they, they could see God shining through Christ, but they're not destroyed. They don't have to hide their faces. Now, that's, that's kind of part one of what's being revealed the second part, I think, is almost even better. 
And it has to do this with this question, why are they not destroyed? Why weren't they overwhelmed when they caught a glimpse of God? Why don't the disciples have to like hide in a cave like Elijah and Moses did? Or why are their faces not like frying? Why are they not overwhelmed by the encounter with the divine that they experienced in the presence of Christ that day? And the answer that the Christian tradition gives is that God shining through a human person was how the world was designed to function from the beginning. Isn't that wild? Like, this is how God planned it all along. I mean, in the beginning, clear back in the book of Genesis, God creates human beings in the image of God to be God's image bearers, God's presence to the world and to each other. Remember when Adam was alone and God looked at it and said, this is not good, and had to create another to face him, to image God to him, and then it, then it was good. Then, then they could bear the image of God to, to one another. This is how, always, um, how God had always planned to show up in the world through human beings who bear God's image. So that's why they're not destroyed. And really kind of two things happen when humans come face to face. One is we reflect back each other's humanity. We see ourselves in the other. It's not always pleasant. But your life reflects back to me my own life. What's right with me and also what's wrong with me. It's a huge part of how we change and grow and are renewed in the image of God. Becoming human is human is intended to be. Which leads to the second thing that happens, which is we then bear the image of God to each other. So we reflect back our humanity and we bear God's image. We're all created in the image of God to bear God's image so that they can know through us God is real. And not just real, but here, now, with us, shining through as we bear God's image. We, um, the, the word often used is we mediate the presence of God to each other. I mean, with Christ, it's a little more obvious up there on the mountaintop. He lit up like a human welding rod. And if you remember in the story, um, they, they, um, they were afraid and fall face down on the ground. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Like, get up. He's, he's like, you're, all, you're okay. This is just how it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to work. And, and kind of what, what we have taken from this in our tradition is that um, learning to see God shining through one another um, is about learning to attend to the mystery um, of God, the mystery of the divine in the other, in another person. Peter, James, and John, they got closer to God than Moses or Elijah combined in their mountaintop experiences, but these guys weren't consumed because this is how God had always planned for things to work. And just one more chapter. So this is Matthew 17. Matthew 18, Jesus will say it explicitly. He says, For wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. And you can kind of see the implications of what this means for us as, as people. It means after the kind of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, our most consistent 
immediate and inexhaustible conduit to the divine is always the person sitting next to us if we have eyes to see it. This always reminds me of that, that text from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He said, um, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness, right? In ever-increasing glory, Paul says, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Like this is, this is how it's supposed to work. We have these unveiled faces. If we have eyes to see it. And the problem is the same problem we talked about in the beginning, that it's just, it's a reality that is still always shrouded in mystery, in this great cloud of unknowing. And so it can be difficult to discern and embrace. I mean, the upside is we don't have to go mountain climbing. That's not your jam. You're good. Or in more in a spiritual sense, we don't have to go to church camp. You know, we don't have to conjure up some mountaintop experience so we can say we've met with God. It's supposed to be way more boring than this, way more normal. We don't need a spectacular encounter with the divine. For one thing, when it, when it happens, in the scripture at least, most of the time people get sleepy, which means it, we're really apt to confuse those mountaintop experiences. Does that register? They're not that desirable because we usually fall asleep. We misapprehend them. They confuse us. We mistake things for God that aren't God. Or we'll be like Peter and try to, you know, camp out there. Or, you know, be good capitalists and try to bottle it and sell it, which churches all over do all the time. But this story teaches that most of the time, Learning to see God just involves learning to attend to the mystery of the divine that's shining through the people around us. And if this is going to happen, part of what has to be transfigured for us is the way we view one another. It's a holy thing to be a person, a human being. And so we might want to be more intentional about our relationships Embed ourselves in relationships that help us see the image of God in others and in ourselves and have this reflected back to us. Now, I'm not saying there's like some magic formula um, or even some particular way of doing this. The way you do it is just your way. Just be you. But be you treating everyone you encounter as an image bearer. Which, which involves a certain amount of um, reverence, you know what I mean? For, for the other person, for the role that they play in the world and in our lives, and for the way they, they can draw out even our own humanity and orient our lives and ourselves toward, toward God. I mean, as Christians, we're supposed to be the ones who do this, who attend to the mystery of the divine, not in the mountaintop and the big thing, but in the ordinary people we come to, you know, face-to-face with every day. It's kind of like God is hiding, but in plain sight, disguised as the neighbor. But it's not just a neighbor. Like, that, that's, we're used to that word. But it's like disguised as your boss, you know? Dis- disguised as your children, your coworkers. Disguised as, like, that annoying person, you know? 
or even our enemies. And learning to do this is deeply human and humane and humanizing for us. And forgetting this and not doing it is, is deeply inhuman, inhumane, and dehumanizing. In other words, it makes it more impossible to bear God's image. We bear some other image. And at the same time, um, I think it's important to remind ourselves that it's not like a new law, like a new kind of legalistic thing we have to do. Like, I'm, I'm realistic about this. Half of what we learn from this will be through failure, or maybe more than half, I don't know. Like, learning to love your neighbor or your boss or your enemy, seeing in them the image of God, it's the kind of thing that sounds great in, in theory, but in practice, it is really difficult to do. I, there's this um, line from Barbara Brown Taylor I think about a lot. She says, I have an easier time loving humankind than I do loving particular human beings. Does that resonate? And of course, both are important, but one's kind of a general disposition, and the other one is like frighteningly particular and often embarrassing and almost impossible to do. Um, the poet W.H. Auden, he once wrote, um, I will love you forever, swears the poet. I find this easy to swear to. I will love you at 4.15 p.m. next Tuesday. Is that still as easy? And I think, I think he's right. That's... That's the challenge, like holding this general conviction that our most consistent and immediate and inexhaustible conduit to the divine is always the person sitting next to us. Um, it's, it's kind of almost too easy, but to actually love the person sitting next to us at, next Tuesday at 4.15 p.m. when they're being really annoying or whatever time you find them most annoying. Learning to do this goes all the way back to the parable at the beginning. Learning to do this is really about learning to empty the cup, which in the, in, as a Christian symbol means pouring out our lives for one another, as Christ did. So like this is Philippians um, 2, the Christ hymn, where he says... Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and, and kinao, kinosis is the word in Greek, poured himself out for his friends, for other human beings. This is how we do it. We have to learn to empty the cup, to pour out our lives for each other. So then there's room for God to show up in our own life through that person. I know I've used this before, but I think the most powerful, like, practical way to do this um, is the um, greeting, namaste. I've talked about this before, but for for much of the world, their typical greeting is not like a handshake um, between people. It is, is to clasp hands, to bow to the other and say namaste. And what namaste means is the part of the divine living in me, bows in recognition to the divine living in you. This is, this is it. This is the practice. Bows in reverence to the fact that you're an image-bearing creature. I see in you the image of God, and I bow to it in reverence. This is the awareness that we're looking for. And um, the way that it comes is this 
humility, like bowing. This is an act of humility, of pouring out, <laughs> pouring out the cup. And so I just leave you with that practice. I don't know how you can work it into your Lent and your normal stuff. Start awkwardly greeting your spouse, namaste, or whatever, how you want to do it. Just try to fit it into your daily routine and, and, and see if it doesn't remind you to, to see in them the image of God. And of course, there are other ways to empty the cup, right? Serving one another. But namaste is just a simple practice that makes us pay attention, have an awareness, right, of this other image-bearing creature. Being able to truly care about people is, is um, in the Christian tradition, about learning to sacrifice for them, to pour out our lives for each other, um, to be attentive to the image of God shining through the other, and to do this over and over in myriad and petty little unsexy ways every single day, right? We empty the cup. But as we empty the cup, we're making space for God. That's the transfiguration. That's, that's really the miracle. And it's, the miracle is not that it happened on a hill in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It's that it can happen today. Every time we greet one another. It's God lives on in and through ordinary human beings like you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for this story and for the reality that you want to be known by us and that one of the big, big ways that this will happen is in our encounter with the other. Pray, God, that we would learn to empty the cup, pour out our lives for one another, and encounter you. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. We do this because on the night when he he was betrayed, Jesus took a cup and a loaf of bread, shared it with these guys. They all drank from the same cup and ate from the same loaf. And he said, this cup is, is my blood, my life. This loaf is my body. And what he asked us to do is to receive his body and blood, his life, into our life and be in a sense, made out of the stuff he's made out of. And he said, every time you you gather, I want you to do this. Eat, Eat this bread, drink this cup. Remember who you are until I come again. And so this is this is why we receive communion every week. It's also why we invite everybody to take part. And so first I would ask you to to pray with me a blessing on the meal. Oh God, we ask that you would bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?